Good morning. Welcome to Good Ancestors and Local Treasures with Corrine Pierce. You just heard Mr. Thomas Brown and Ilem Pomo elders singing a Shakehead song. I always want to thank him and give him a shout out to him. Synthamana, Ana Pikabitam Day. I am your host, K. She Corrine Pierce. I'm a local Pomo basket weaver, traditional artist, herbalist, dancer, storyteller, and cultural educator with ancestry from Lake and Mendocino County tribes. Yawi, thank you for joining me this morning to take a closer look at some of the amazing people, places, and events that make our home in Mendocino, Lake, and Sonoma counties unique and rich. I'm grateful to be able to share some of my personal heroes and friends who happen to be some of the most influential movers and shakers in our local indigenous community and beyond. I'm grateful for the opportunity to introduce today's guests. This morning, we're being joined by two brilliant young women making a big difference in our local community. My first guest this morning will be Taylor Penwell, the executive director of the Redbud Resource Group, along with Rose Hammock, who's making her second visit with us here at Good Ancestors and Local Treasures. She's a community outreach specialist for Red Bud Resource Group, and I'm grateful for both of you to be here today. Before uh, we get to our guests today, I want to share something really special to, with everybody that's listening. And I'm going to be talking a lot, so you know, get your tea and get ready. This morning, I want to take time to recognize that in July of 2022, 19 days ago, in fact, and 109 years after Jim Thorpe was stripped of his Olympic gold medals, he has finally been reinstated by the International Olympic Committee as the sole winner of the decathlon and pentathlon events that took place at the Olympic Games in Stockholm, Sweden, 1912. This is a big deal, not only in Indian country, but for the United States and sports lovers everywhere. Jim Thorpe was the first Native American to win gold at the Olympic Games. Then, having it stripped from him less than a year later was devastating. It was a blow not only to him personally, um, because he didn't really understand what he did wrong, 
um, but for the entire indigenous community. I grew up in a home and community that knew about the accomplishments of Big Jim Thorpe and celebrated his athletic achievements, which were many. Um, I'm going to tell you about his early life and some of his accomplishments, and I have to be honest and say that I edited this so much. There are so many books about him. Um, they're making a movie about him right now. If you want to know more about him, there's so much more to know than what I am going to tell you. And I have to apologize. I woke up with allergies this morning, and I sound like I was running a marathon. So I'm going to take a drink of water, and then I'm going to read this to you. Jim Thorpe was born during a lightning storm in May of 1887 in Indian Territory, which later became known as Oklahoma. He was of mixed heritage. His father was half Irish and half Sac and Fox tribe. His mother was half French and half Potawatomi. As was the custom for the Sac and Fox tribe, he was named for something occurring around the time of his birth. He was named Watohuk, which translates to path lit by great flash of lightning, or more simply, bright path. Jim Thorpe had a challenging childhood. His, he and his twin brother Charlie were sent to Indian boarding schools, where they repeatedly tried to run away. While at one of these boarding schools, at the age of nine, Jim lost his twin brother to pneumonia. When Jim was 11 years old, his mother passed away due to complications during childbirth. And at the age of 16, Jim Thorpe was sent to the infamous Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania. One year later, at the age of 17, his father died, leaving Jim Thorpe an orphan. While at Carlisle Indian School, young Jim's athletic ability was recognized and he was coached by Glenn Scobie Warner also known as Pop Warner. Yes, that Pop Warner. One of the most influential coaches of early American football history. Thorpe began his athletic career at Carlisle in 1907 when he walked past the track and still in street clothes beat all the school's high jumpers with an impromptu five foot nine inch jump. He also competed in football, baseball, lacrosse, and ballroom dancing, winning the 1912 Intercollegiate Ballroom Dancing Championship. Jim was also a two-time All-American for the school's football team under Coach Pop Warner. Thorpe first gained nationwide notice in 1911 for his athletic ability as a running back, defensive back, place kicker, and punter. Thorpe scored all of his team's four field goals. I'm sorry, four field goals in an 18-15 upset of Harvard, of Harvard, a top-ranked team in the early days of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. That year, his team finished the season 11 to one. So, when um, in that time, when Indian teams would play non-Indian teams, it was really. Um, racially charged and the press would often make it seem like war like the army is going to fight the natives you know so it was it was crazy at that time carlisle's 1912 record included a 27 to 6 victory over the west point army team in that game i love the, i left this stat in for you because it's awesome 
Thorpe's 92-yard touchdown was nullified by a teammate's penalty. But on the very next play, Thorpe rushed for a 97-yard touchdown. What? Um, future president Dwight D. Eisenhower, who played against him in that game, recalled of Thorpe in a 1961 speech. And I hope I don't cry. I cry a lot, but I'm going to try real hard. Here and there, there are some people who are supremely endowed. My memory goes back to Jim Thorpe. He never practiced in his life, and he could do anything better than any other football player I ever saw. In the spring of 1912, he started training for the Olympics. He had confined his efforts to jumps, hurdles, and shot puts, but now added pole vaulting, javelin, discus, and hammer. In the Olympic trials held at the Celtic Park in New York, his all-around ability stood out in all these events, and so he earned a place on the team that went to Sweden. The first notice of Thorpe in the New York Times was headlined, Indian Thorpe in Olympiad, Red Skin from Carlisle will strive for a place on the American team. Throughout his life, Thorpe's accomplishments were described in a similar racial context by other newspapers and sports writers. Remember, at this time, Native Americans were still over a decade away from becoming citizens of the United States. Jim competed in the pentathlon, which consisted of the long jump, javelin throw, 200-meter dash, discus throw, and the 1,500-meter run. He also competed in the decathlon, which was a two-day competition, the first day consisting of the 100-meter dash, long jump, shot put, high jump, and 400-meter dash. The second day consists of 110-meter hurdles, discus throw, pole vault, javelin throw, and the 1,500-meter run. Both events seemed appropriate for Thorpe, who was so versatile that he served as Carlisle's one-man team in several track meets. The first competition was the pentathlon on July 7th. He won four of the five events and placed third in javelin, which was an event he had not competed in until that year. Thorpe's final event at the 1912 Olympic Games was the decathlon, his first and, as it turned out, his only decathlon. Jim placed in the top four in all ten events, and his Olympic record of 8,413 points stood for nearly two decades, which was even more remarkable because someone had stolen his shoes just before he was due to compete. He found a mismatched pair of replacement shoes, including one from a trash can that was too big, and he had to wear several pairs of socks. And there's a very famous picture of him wearing two different shoes at the Olympics. So that's, that's pretty cool. Overall, Thorpe won eight of the 15 individual events, compromising the pentathlon and decathlon. Along with the two gold medals, Thorpe received challenge prizes. While receiving the challenge prize for the decathlon, several sources recount that when awarding Thorpe his prize, King Gustav V of Sweden said, quote, you, sir, are the greatest athlete in the world, end quote. But in late January 1913, U.S. newspapers began reporting that Thorpe had played professional baseball before the Olympics. Thorpe had played professional baseball in Eastern Carolina League for Mount 
or for Rocky Mount, North Carolina, in 1909 and 1910, receiving meager pay, reportedly as little as $2 per game or as much as $35 a week. Many college players, in fact, regularly spent summers playing professionally in order to earn money. But most used aliases, which Thorpe didn't know, <laughs> so he didn't use an alias. Although the public didn't care about Thorpe's past, the Amateur Athletic Union took the case very seriously. Thorpe wrote a letter to James Edward Sullivan, the secretary of the UUA, in which he admitted playing professional baseball. Quote, I hope I will be partly excused by the fact that I was simply an Indian schoolboy and did not know all about such things. In fact, I did not know that what I was doing was wrong, because I was doing what I knew several other college men had done, except that they did not use their own names. End quote. His letter did not help. The Amateur Athletic Union decided to withdraw Thorpe's amateur status retroactively. Later that year, the International Olympic Committee unanimously decided to strip Thorpe of his medals, titles, and awards and declare him a professional. Although Thorpe had played for money, the AAU and the IOC did not follow their own rules for disqualification. The rule book for the 1912 Olympics stated that protests had to be made within 30 days of the closing ceremony of the Games. The first newspaper reports did not appear until January 1913, about six months after the Stockholm Games concluded. The only positive aspect of this affair for Thorpe was that as soon as the news was reported that he had been declared a professional, he received offers from professional sports clubs. Jim Thorpe played six seasons in Major League Baseball between 1913 and 1919. He played with the New York Giants, Milwaukee Brewers, Cincinnati Reds, and Boston Braves. Football remained Jim's favorite sport, and he played 52 games as a professional football player for six teams from 1920 to 1928. He was nominally the first president of the National Football League for two years after it was established. He was also a professional basketball player and even contemplated a career in professional ice hockey. There truly was not a sport that this gifted man could not master. In 1982, author Robert Wheeler and his wife Florence Ridlin established the Jim Thorpe Foundation and gained support from the U.S. Congress. Armed with this support and evidence from 1912, proving that Thorpe's disqualification had occurred after the 30-day time period allowed, they succeeded in making a case. In October 1982, the IOC Executive Committee approved Thorpe's reinstatement, but it was an unusual ruling. They declared that Thorpe was co-champion with Ferdinand Bai and Weislander, although both of these athletes had always said that they considered Thorpe to be the only champion. In a ceremony on January 18, 1983, the IOC presented two of Thorpe's children with commemorative medals. Thorpe's original medals had been held in museums, but they were both stolen and have never been recovered. Okay, we're coming into the current century now. <laughs> 
Then in July 2020, a petition from Bright Path Strong, which I think, I hope a lot of people listening signed. I, I know I did. Um, and it called upon the IOC to reinstate Thorpe as the sole winner in the events in the 1912 Olympics. Um, that petition was backed by PictureWorks Entertainment, which is currently making a film about Thorpe. And the petition was also supported by Olympian Billy Mills, who won a gold medal um, in the 10,000 meters at the 1964 Tokyo Games. The IOC voted to reinstate Thorpe as the sole winner of both events on July 14th, 2022. 19 days ago. Woohoo! Um, Okay, I'm going to read just some of his accomplishments, and then we are going to start talking to our guests, and I'm just so excited. So Thorpe's achievements received great acclaim from sports journalists, both during his lifetime and since his death. In 1950, an Associated Press poll of almost 400 sports writers and broadcasters voted Thorpe the greatest athlete of the first half of the 20th century. That same year, the Associated Press ranked Thorpe as the greatest American football player of the first half of the century. The Pro Football Hall of Fame voters selected him for the NFL 50th anniversary all-time team in 1967. In 1999, the Associated Press placed him third on its list of top athletes of the century, following Babe Ruth and Michael Jordan. ESPN ranked Thorpe seventh on their list of best North American athletes of the century. Thorpe was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1963. He was one of 17 players in the charter class. Thorpe is memorialized in the Pro Football Hall of Fame rotunda with a larger-than-life statue. He was also inducted into halls of fame for college football, American Olympic teams, and the national track and field competition. In, in 2018, Thorpe became one of the inductees in the first induction ceremony held by the National Native American Hall of Fame. President Richard Nixon, as authorized by U.S. Senate Joint Resolution 73, proclaimed Monday, April 16, 1973, as Jim Thorpe Day to promote nationwide recognition of Thorpe's life. In 1986, the Jim Thorpe Association established an award with Thorpe's name. The Jim Thorpe Award is given annually to the best defensive back in college football. The annual Thorpe Cup Athletics Meeting uh, is named in his honor. The United States Postal Service issued a 32-cent stamp on February 2, 1998 as part of the Celebrate the Century Stamp Sheet series. In a poll of sports fans published in 2000, the ABC, um, by ABC Sports, Jim Thorpe was voted the greatest athlete of the 20th century. Um, I think that's amazing. I hope that you enjoyed what I told you, and I hope that you all join me in celebrating um, this victory that's long overdue for this 
great, great man. So, um, okay, I talked a lot, um, but we are going to hop right in with our first guest. Um, and I'm so excited to welcome Taylor Penwell. Thank you for joining me. Um, how are you this morning? Hi, thanks so much for having us. I'm great. Nani, Nikki Yamsa Taylor. Hello, my name is Taylor Pennywell, and I am a citizen of Berry Creek Rancheria, then of Time Maidu Indians of California. We are Maidu tribe located in Butte County, California, uh, right near Lake Orville. And I am also born and raised in uh, Wapo territory in uh, northern Santa Rosa as well. Uh, and so I've kind of lived my life, uh, my identity split in two tribal territories in Pomo, Wapo, and Cosmiwak territory. So I've had that perspective my whole life. And then the Maidu perspective in the Sierra Nevada mountains as well. And I'm very thankful to be here as a guest, uh, not only on the show, but also on the territory uh, where I live. Uh, I am the executive director of Redbud Resource Group, and we are a Native American-led nonprofit with the mission of eradicating public health outcomes for Native American communities through education programs, through community partnerships, and through research as well. And uh, a little bit about the origins of Redbud. Uh, so I was born and raised in Sonoma County, like I said, and I, I went to school at University of San Francisco uh, after graduating high school here in 2010. And I got a master's degree uh, in education to be a teacher because I want to be a middle school teacher. And while I was teaching middle school in San Francisco, I uh, had Native students in my class. But it was really clear that the education system that they were in was failing them. They didn't see themselves in the education. I, as a teacher, had a hard time figuring out how to include Native perspectives in the curriculum I was forced to teach from the textbook. And, uh, you know, the, the strengths that they had in giving back to their community and leading their community outside of school were being ignored in the classroom. In one of my conversations with a colleague, uh, I had a, it was actually a superior of mine, asked me what my long-term goals were for my career as a teacher. Did I want to be a teacher for the rest of my life or did I want to do something else? And I said, I want to serve Indian country. At some point, I'm going to take everything that I've learned in grad school and I'm going to take it and just serve my people. And that person said, that's really nice. Too bad we don't have any Native kids in this school. <laughs> and the funny thing was, is that I had a bunch of Pomo kids in my class. In fact, some of them were Rose's nieces at the time. And so my response was, well, it, it's not that we don't have Native kids here. It's that you don't see them. It's that you have not been equipped with the skills to even know that you have Native kids in your class. So how can you serve them if you don't see them? At the same time, my cousin Madison, who's also a citizen of uh, Berry Creek Rancheria, was getting her master's in public health at Harvard, of all places. And she turned in a project for her master's degree that was designing a public health intervention for the Native American community to address maternal mortality rates. And she worked with the IHS clinic in Boston with the Native community there to design something that reflected them and their needs. So she, she turned the project in and she got it back and her professor gave her an F. And so she went to the professor and was like, what, what the heck, right? <laughs> this is non F project. 
And the professor said, well, the Native community just isn't a big enough, it's not a statistically relevant enough community to warrant a public health intervention for this. And so, anyway. That's fighting words. <laughs> that's oh, that's only, that's people who have blinders on. It's That's crazy to to give her an F and to say, just to make that statement that we are not significant enough to care about our outcomes is ridiculous. Okay, go go on. I thought I might have to fight. <laughs> well, so you can tell there's a theme here, right? In the education system, we're not a big enough population for people to notice us. In the public health system, we're not a big enough population for people to notice us. This goes far beyond public health and education. It goes into every sector of American life. And so my cousin and I were having this conversation on the phone, like complaining about this happening at the same time to us. And we were like, well, we need to do something about this as as young Native women who have resources, who have also been raised in a family that that taught us that it was our responsibility to give back. uh, We need to take an opportunity and be the intervention. We need to address this issue ourselves because the reality is, is that if, you know, 90% of the country doesn't know you exist or doesn't want you to exist, how can you trust them to, to design anything for you? Curriculum, public health support, a law, you know, whatever, whatever you want, right? If people, if you are not seen, let alone understood, then the world that you live in isn't going to offer things that reflect your strengths, reflect your experiences, reflect your needs. And so we designed Redbud Resource Group as a nonprofit, actually as her master's program final project through Harvard. And so we were the only Native project that went through that school. The only one. And I have a lot more to say about that, but I'm going to let that go. <laughs> so uh, we formed as a nonprofit in June 2020. That was my last year in the classroom, and I just pivoted toward, towards this work because my grandma always taught me, you can't do something halfway. If you're going to do it, you need to do it. And I knew that if I didn't leave the classroom and just go for it, that I wasn't going to do it all the way, right? So anyways, um, Red Bud, we have three wings, and, and they're all moving at different paces because there's only a couple of us on the team. We have a K-12 through wing where we write native uh, curriculum. So really, right now, really basic lessons on geography. Like I said, I worked as a middle school teacher, and so I'm trying to speak to teachers the way that they know how to be spoken to uh, while also authentically representing the native community and also creating spaces in lessons for native people to speak for themselves because we know that we need to speak for ourselves. It's very awkward when a non-native teacher tries to speak for us. They don't like it and we don't like it. So um, we're providing professional developments to teachers. We are writing curriculum at the state level and also working with museums like the National Museum of American Indian to help them pilot their California genocide lesson series, which is very, very important. Um, and I take that very seriously as, as a member of a tribe who is in the middle of the genocide up in the Sierra Nevada foothills. So we have that education wing. We also have a program called Going Beyond Land Acknowledgements, which is pretty popular. 
And it is a training program that um, prepares organizations, companies, and government agencies to return land, resources, and power to Native communities via concrete action and commitment. So we walk people through um, the history of California. We help people understand that they are living in a state that is um, being colonized now. It is still being colonized, right? And we also help people understand that the colonization and the genocide of Native people goes with ecocide. They're, the, they're, the, they're one and the same. You can't take indigenous people from indigenous land and expect that land to be healthy, right? And so we help people understand that and then we assess their organizational capacity to give land back, to give resources back, to give power back. And everyone who works with us leaves with concrete steps. And Rose and I meet with them six months later, a year later to make sure they're actually doing it. That's like really, really important to us is that we're not gonna let people off the hook. And what we explain to people is that the reason we don't let you off the hook is because this is a life or death issue for Native people. Currently, one in four Native youth die by suicide annually. What are some of the reasons? What are the, some of the contributing factors? Well, a lot, one really big one is that people feel completely ignored and erased in their communities. And they are. And so by getting people to commit to changing their actions, to giving land back, to supporting tribal sovereignty, we're actually addressing that suicide rate because we are increasing the, the chances that a native youth, but also a native youth, uh, adult, will see themselves reflected in the world that they lived in and feel empowered by it as well. So that's our Going Beyond Land Acknowledgements program. And then the third wing is that we uh, are developing a research, or we want, is our long-term goal, we want a research institution that is Native-led. So that, that, that point about Native people not being statistically relevant, so that is not a thing anymore. We want to create our own IRB, our internal review board within Redbud. We want to work with universities. We want to work with Native researchers to make sure that there's a large body of work that proves that land back is a public health intervention, that uh, having healthy food is a public health intervention, that having art gallery shows that highlight and center Native voices are public health interventions, and we want Native people to be in control of that data. So we're doing a lot. It's only been two years and uh, me and Rose are the only full-time employees. <laughs> so we're busy. That's amazing. I, oh, I see you guys doing stuff all the time, just everywhere. And I'm so amazed by um, how well received it is. I'm so grateful that now is the time. Like, Although I, I always feel bad when I say, you know, California had to have 80% of it burn up before they finally listen to what we've been saying, you know, and I, I love that you said that you can't remove the indigenous people from the land and expect the land to survive, especially in California, where it was so, so maintained from top to bottom and really park like and all of the earliest accounts from Russian traders talk about um, that you could ride side by side on horses through the entire length of California and, and not need to move. That's 
If you look at our our forests now, it's definitely not like that. Um, can you talk about how you delivered the curriculum, your K through twelve curriculum, to the classrooms? Sure. Well, I will say that this this is a big experiment for us, and um, the the K through twelve programming is not quite as developed as the going beyond land acknowledgement. So we're still ironing it out, but. Um, what we started with last year, which is the first year we delivered any professional development to teachers, was um, by, well, first of all, Karen, you're probably familiar with this because you work in schools. One of the biggest barriers to teaching and including Native perspectives in the classroom is that teachers have a lot to unlearn themselves, right? Like the average teacher, and I'm saying this as a teacher, and most of my friends are teachers, just simply are not educated on these topics in the way that they need to be in order to responsibly give curriculum. And I will say like, that's an issue with teaching about any group that is not the group that you belong to. It's a little weird to be in the position to have to represent that group to, to, to children, right? It's a big responsibility. And so what we've really started with is professional developments that undo teachers perceptions of what it means to be native American um, and we uh, do that often by collecting the media resources and the books and the poetry that already exists that are written by Native people and guiding teachers with like inquiry questions that are going to get them to uh, um, kind of challenge their own assumptions, right? And so like, for example, um, we, have a, we have a painting by Frank Day, who is one of our tribal members, um, that we showed a to teachers to talk about respect, reciprocity, and relationships. And it's a picture of a man and he is like reaching across the canvas. It's an oil, it's an oil painting. And around him is a decomposing ecosystem. And we asked the teachers, how do you see respect, reciprocity, and relationship in this painting? And if you can identify that, like what does that tell you about the native relationship to land and, and indigenous worldview kind of broadly? And then, and then we bring in specific tribal perspectives by Native people um, who've already created work, who've created content, uh, because it is so, so important that people are speaking for themselves. Um, but so, so that's kind of where we've started, really, is like working with the teachers to really get them on board. Teachers are very open-minded for the most part and um, have been very well receptive. We also have a little video series that we created called Sing Our Native Students that's on YouTube. It's also on our website, redbudresourcegroup.org, that breaks down really, really basic information that we say all teachers need to know. Things like tribal membership, things like um, blood quantum and how to discuss these kinds of things with students or how to not discuss them with students. Um, things about basic geography, that you need to understand before you can even enter this space. And so while I would love to say like, we have a bunch of curriculum and you should just teach it. Honestly, most of our work is in preparing teachers to teach. We do have a um, small series of lessons that was created by Trilesa Barada. Okay, yes, and uh, she's from Middletown Rancheria. 
And they are uh, very, very, very basic lessons that any teacher could use and adapt for their region that can help them establish a geographic perspective from which to teach the class. Because the first thing that Rose and I tell teachers is um, like native identity is connected to story, is connected to place. And if you start your class by introducing the place where students live, like when you go to review maps or whatever, and you instead do it from the native perspective, then it gets easier to include native people for the rest of your curriculum, for the rest of your year, because you started from an indigenous um, place, right? An understanding of geography. But as you know, you can't, you can't really do it fully unless you're a native person. So there's just little breadcrumbs that we offer people, but we hope it makes a difference. That's awesome. I yeah, I do work in schools, <laughs> and I'm gonna share something, and I, and I hope it doesn't offend anybody. Um, but we had we did panels where I had uh, different people, and I would always try to get people that actually went to the school. For example, if you went to Oak Manor or I went to Calpella, I did a panel there with other adults about education and um we did one at, at a school and i i got a phone call from uh one of the teachers who had attended and she was pretty upset and uh, it was you know a week or so after the panel and she said i paid a lot of money to go to one of the best schools to become a teacher and i just realized that i learned to teach white supremacy and that was a huge shock. And I think that, that we're so used to um, that in our classrooms. Um, we're so used to only hearing Native perspective through a white lens at um, Thanksgiving and during November. And then nothing about Native Americans for the rest of the year. So um, a lot of kids get that. Um, perspective of, you know, this is all we are. We're Thanksgiving Indians. We're, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I think that including Native perspective in the classroom is really, really big. When we started the program that I do now, one of the main things was to get books in the school that were written by Natives, about Natives, illustrated by Natives. Um, and it was harder than you can imagine. I know you guys do the same thing, but there is a statistic um, that you can look up, you can um, find it online, about representation in literature, and that there is more representation of sentient speaking animals than there are representations of smart native people. Um, it's really disturbing and so it's it's good that you're doing that i'm glad that you're getting such a great warm welcome um and i want to thank you so much for sharing everything that you did um, and i just want to let everyone know uh, that we were just talking can you say your last name it's pennywell yeah yeah okay pennywell. taylor pennywell from redbud resource group you're listening to kzyx philo 90.7 fm kzyz willits and ukiah 91.5 fm and fort bragg at 88.1 fm you're listening to good ancestors and local treasures with corinne pierce and um, i'm about to welcome our second guest the beautiful rose hammock thank you for joining me for a second time um you're such a good ancestor and local treasure we had to have you twice <laughs> Sintamana. Uh, how are you my name is rose hammock i'm pomo wailaki and maidu 
I'm uh, enrolled with the Round Valley Indian tribes up in Mendocino County, but I have a lot of uh, ancestry from this homeland of California um, in Lake and Mendocino County. Um, I also have Native ancestry from Oregon, from my grandmother's people, and from my mother's people, uh, ancestry uh, from parts of Mexico and Nicaragua. And, um, you know, thinking about good ancestors, we always introduce all of the people that we come from because that is what makes us us. And I think all of the work that we are doing over here at Redbud Resource Group is all about that positive Native visibility. And I think as Native people creating curriculum, creating videos, creating these long-lasting relationships, it's all about us helping elevate other people's story. So even as other Native people, our goal is not to tell the story for other people because we also honor the sovereignty. We have that honor and that respect for our for our ancestors, for our relatives, for all the people within our community. And I think what Taylor was sharing earlier about our our programs that we do, it's all about bringing the education out. You know, all of this knowledge that we have, we get that from our ancestors. And um, I was very thankful and grateful to attend uh, run for salmon's closing ceremony yesterday that happened at Muir Beach. And, um, you know, thinking about positive visibility, many people on the beach assumed that we were there having a party and we had to keep correcting people. We're having a ceremony. Um, and we noticed a lot of uh, kind of onlookers on the beach stopping to watch us dance and people were coming up asking questions. And I think, um, you know, being able to participate in, in those types of ceremonies out in public, that is us representing who we come from and who our people are. Um, and just for myself, thinking for my grandpa born in, in the early 40s, I was born in 1996. What a beautiful time it is to grow up where being Native is something to be really proud of. We don't have to hide who we are. We don't have to hide where we come from. Um, and I think for myself and for Taylor and for the rest of the women that we get to work with, we really get to help elevate um, all of our young people to tell them that, you know, if your teacher doesn't know, you can educate your teacher. That's something I always tell the young people that I work with, um, whether it be with Redbud or out in the community, that um, we all have knowledge. And whether you're a youth or an elder, or someone in between, uh, you have a lot of that knowledge that you can share with the world. And we're all here as learners and teachers. And I think it's uh, it's really amazing the positivity that we've received with giving our, um, what we call Gibla for short, our Going Beyond Land Acknowledgement trainings. And, um, you know, we're going to be taken on a partnership here soon with a uh, program called Together Bay Area. Uh, it's over a couple years, and we have the opportunity to work with a lot of uh, land trust and conservation groups. And I will say now here on the air, my goal is to get people to understand that they have more access to the land than the people of that land. And what a privilege that is to have that because 
you have something to offer the people that are here. And whether that be co-management or handing over management, we need to make sure that we are getting our weavers, our medicine people out on the land where they need to be to help bridge those connections back. And a lot of the times, these places that are parks and, and different places like that, that was somebody's home and is still somebody's home. And, um, you know, just being able to, to bring the education and the awareness that we are not people of the past. We're around and we don't all look a certain way. You know, again, that positive visibility that we all look different. We all speak different languages. Um, but I think it's, it's a good opportunity for us to also help with some of the other projects we do. Um, we do some filming on land back and we do, um, you know, different stories. So we have one that's, uh, same land, different stories where, you know, we could look at a picture of Sonoma County, for example, and you see a picture of vineyards, but then we show pictures of where our traditional plants grow in the park. And so that idea of being in a park, but for us, it's also a place that we can go and gather to make baskets, to gather tea or gather medicine for our family or for our elders. And so it's, uh, it's a wonderful time to be able to spread this knowledge and spread this awareness. And we're also learning so much along the way, too. You know, I think uh, something I hold dear to myself is something my grand my grandpa taught me is that we never stop learning. And something he shared with me before he passed away um, back in 2019 is that even when I go to the spirit world, I still have things to learn. And so I think we really try to bring that um, that thought with us when we go into the different spaces that we go to. We are always moving in a way of being a guest, just like Taylor shared. Um, we come from so many different territories, but we also acknowledge that we live here and we occupy in someone else's territory. And so, um, you know, when we're doing filming or when we're uh, doing projects, we try to make those connections with those relatives and that we're giving respect and honor to whatever we're doing because we're here in their space. And so it's all about acknowledging our ancestors, acknowledging other people's ancestors and just moving through this, through this world in a good way. Oh, um, when you're, when you were talking, it made me think of something actually. And I, I want to share it because I think a lot of people when they hear, and I, I've talked about this before, when they hear the land back, they get really scared <laughs> um, because uh, we are brought up in a society of retribution. Like, you know, you do something to me, I'm going to do something worse to you. Now, mutual assert, you know, assured uh, extinction here. Um, but that's totally not our way. And when we are talking about land back, we're talking about management of the land and it would be it would behoove all of us <laughs> to ask the indigenous people would it be a good idea to put that dam there before we do it because now you know we have are having all this drought issues um you know we know that native plants have deeper roots 
and need less water, but they hold the water to the land so that it doesn't rush away. Uh, we also know that they burn at a lower temperature than invasive plants. We have a lot of skill. And when we say land back, we mean that we understand that you're here, that <laughs> there are colonizers still here, and we're trying to to represent and speak for the, the land that we're on. Um, there are many, many uh, myths about animals giving their voice to people. And it's our responsibility to speak for them. So it's, it's a very important thing. Um, I am thinking of a place <laughs> in Ukiah where they made a small park and they planted willow along the creek bed. And I'm thinking, yes, this is in my territory. This is, I'm going to harvest this out of this willow, going to be the most beautiful willow ever. And it was also, before they put the park in, was a place that I harvested willow anyway. And then when I got there with my clippers and my sun hat, I was told I can't do that. I can't take, I can't harvest that willow from there anymore, even though I'm part of the natural environment of that park. Um, I was not allowed to harvest, and now that willow is so overgrown that it is serving no one and blocking what little access to what water is in there for the animals that are coming to drink. Um, so I'm a part of the natural <laughs> world around us, and I and if you have uh, land and you don't know how to manage it, you know, a lot of us buy property and we're like, I don't know what to do with all these things. Ask. And uh, don't be afraid that if you give permission for people to come to your property and, and manage it, that they're going to come in and clear cut it because we're not. I've been contacted several times because I'm, I'm visible in the community. Contacted several times about, uh, you know, I have property. Do you want access to it? And then I have to search my phone book to see whose territory that is. And first offer that to them. Um, offer it to the elders. If I go there, I maintain it. I, I My goal is to pass anything to the people that are from there. That is my goal. And I think that's all of our goal when we talk about land back. Um, thank you so much. Um, ladies for sharing everything that you have shared. I want to give you guys time um, to talk about the events that are upcoming and how people can get in contact with you if they want to utilize your amazing resources. Sure. Well, we, we have an event tomorrow at 9 a.m. It's a roundtable that uh, Redbud is co-hosting with the Outdoor Alliance, which is a consortium of um, recreational organizations across the country. And I will be interviewing uh, uh, Chairman Ron Good of the North Fork Mono. He's a mentor of Rose and Eyes and is amazing. He's an amazing resource. And we're going to be talking about how tribes can... Uh, partner or how, how tribes have partnered with recreational organizations across the country uh, to strengthen tribal sovereignty and to actually return land stewardship back to our waterways. One of the case studies we're going to discuss is uh, around a, a dam and a trail that his tribe was able to uh, 
reestablished in their territory because of a, a good relationship. Uh, Geneva Thompson will also be there, Assistant uh, Secretary of the Office of Tribal Affairs for the uh, California Natural Resources Department. And, and so that will be a great thing to listen in on. You can register on our website, redbudresourcegroup.org. And then next week, we have a uh, introduction to Native curriculum that's going to be led by myself and Trilesa Barada from Middletown Rancheria. You can also sign up on our website. Uh, next week, we also have an introduction to data sovereignty. Super important. How can you as a Native person own your intellectual property? Don't let people steal it. It is yours. This is super, super important for tribes and for anyone who does anything in the yeah, name For all Indigenous people. That's part of the UN, you know, their protection of Indigenous rights is you own your, your intellectual yes. property. And that's important. And, and um, I was contacted by a company that I love and I won't mention, and I wish that I could have done work with them, but they wanted to have all of my intellectual property rights for anything that I did for them. And I stood up for myself and said no and lost the opportunity. But keeping my fingers crossed that they come to their senses and rewrite the contract the way that it should be written and and come back. So um, that's an important thing. I'm so grateful for all the work that you guys do. You guys are really... Um, it's hard to believe that you've only been doing it a couple of years, I think, because you were the people that are made to do it. <laughs> no one else can represent tribal people besides tribal people, because like you mentioned, we haven't been seen um, or recognized. And I had the same experience here at one of the schools where they didn't know that they were natives in the class. They're literally my cousins. Um, and you know, it's it's a big deal. Um, what we learn in school is really what we learn. You know, we don't kids don't come in knowing that sort of stuff, and they make assumptions by what they are presented with. Um, and I think that it's very very important the work that you're doing. I think you are wonderful. Um, you guys are just such good ancestors and local treasures. It's been an honor to have you here today. I'm so grateful. I completely support everything that you do. I'm excited to um, do the video, the upcoming video with you about the Earth, Sky, and Everything in Between art exhibit that's happening in Middletown right now. Um, and just so you know, that has 31 indigenous artists represented in that show and they are tons of different types of media and and amazing people from 12 years old to 75 years old so i'm just excited for more people to see that and for uh to do a lasting project that people will be able to see yeah we ladies um thank you very much for joining me and i will talk to you again soon um I am about to take my leave of you. Um, I'm leaving you with a song so groundbreaking for its time that it is the only instrumental song to ever be banned in the U.S. because it was believed that it would incite riots. And I quote, Teenage Gang Violence, written and performed by Mr. Fred Lincoln Ray Jr., also known as Link Ray. He was a veteran of the Korean War, a musical pioneer, and a member of the Shawnee tribe. I hope you enjoy this classic first hit.
from 1958, Rumble. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>